So I'm excited that this morning as we continue uh, through our series, The Good Life in the Beatitudes, uh, to be able to introduce to you uh, Dan Goody. So let me pray, and as he walks up, uh, would you just welcome him uh, to the church he's been going to for a few months. So I guess welcome him to us as he is here. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, would you, uh, would, would you do what you've had planned? Uh, Father, would you speak uh, what we need to hear? Lord, would your spirit impress on us uh, this one word into the, uh, the situations and the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Father, uh, would you use Dan to do it? We're so thankful for his life and his ministry and what you've already done, and we're thankful for today what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Moraine. It is a privilege to uh, open with you the word of God today. Uh, Matt Chandler, in his introduction to the Bible study material that we'll be using in small groups, uh, did an excellent job, I thought, of, of introducing elements of the Beatitudes. Interestingly, he left out, blessed are you who mourn. Did you notice that? He went right from poor in spirit to meek, and then he talked about some of these others, and, and, uh, and I think I know why. In fact, when Don asked me to preach, and he says, well, you got a couple of options, and then he texts me and says, well, I, I need you to preach on the 11th, and the text will be, blessed are you who mourn, and I'm going, you dirty rat, you dirty rat, you give me the tough one out of eight things, you give me, you know, and uh, so thank you, Don, uh, and, and that may be why Matt didn't talk about mourning, it's because how do in the process of our walking with Jesus and our growing in our love for God and our fellowship with believers on whom we have this journey, where does mourning fit into that? That doesn't sound like something I want, I want to practice. I, I may need to, I don't want to practice mourning. What is that all about? And so that's what we're going to get into today. It's, it's, uh, it's about this issue of being sad. All of us know what it is to be sad, don't we? Um, various degrees of sadness. I mean, it can go from, from the, the scowl on a kid's face when their ice cream ball falls off of their cone and onto the hot sidewalk. And if we're honest, we as adults would probably feel sad too. We just don't melt into a puddle of tears when that happens. But there's other things that make us feel sad that are a little bit more significant. Perhaps as a student, you have received a poor grade, less than you expected, maybe even worse than you thought you deserved, and, and you're sad. Maybe you've been dumped by a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you've been dismissed from a job. Uh, Diane and I are saddened by the distance that is between us and our kids and grandkids, California, Colorado, Georgia. And that is way too far away for grandkids. And it makes us sad. There's actually a, uh, a phenomenon known as SAD, S-A-D. It is the Seasonal Affect Disorder, it's, it's that which impacts individuals mentally, emotionally, when there's gloomy weather that persists for a long, long time. And, and we were flirting with that, you know, just a month or so ago, in fact, up till probably a week ago, and, and then by the grace of God, we finally got some sunshine, right? <laughs> and it kind of dispels that. Even when it's cold, if the sun is shining, 
We just deal with that better, don't we? Our text this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're going to read it in its context in just a few minutes, but, but as we introduce the theme, I, I want to just point out that, that this verse could accurately be translated, happy are the sad. The problem with that translation is that in our culture today, neither happy nor sad means what Jesus was talking about. It's more than just the happy, 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 you know, the emotional high that we get when things are going our way. And it's more than just being bummed out because things aren't going your way. As we look at the text in its context, last week, uh, Pastor Don read for us as we followed along from the uh, New American Standard Bible, the NASB. And I want us to look at those same 10 verses. I want to read them for you again this morning, this time out of the New International Version. Verses 3 through 12, Matthew chapter 5. If in honor to God's Word, if you were able, if you would stand with me, follow along as I read these verses for you. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 3. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, that which is alive and active and authoritative, applicable for our lives today. And as you have promised by your spirit, we want you this morning to be our teacher, that you would open up our minds, that you would open up our hearts, that you would make us available to you to do the things that we would learn today. You know where every one of us are. And by your Spirit, Father, I pray that you would take your powerful, alive word and make a difference in the way that we live. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today we look specifically at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Dr. John MacArthur says that there are nine Greek words that we find throughout the New Testament, throughout Scripture, uh, if you count the Old Testament translation of the Septuagint, that, that are used to describe grief, various intensities of grief. They express this idea of sadness or sorrow or grief. 
And the word that Jesus uses here to mourn is the most severe or intense form of grief. And it's mostly or most commonly uh, reserved for speaking of our experience when somebody in our circle of love dies. It's, it's the response to death. Most of us know that kind of grief, whether it be for a parent or a spouse or a child. Perhaps that's the most intense of, of the death experiences that we can have. Perhaps for a sibling, a best friend. The word describes an, an agony that is expressed through weeping and wailing and lament. Death is a common part of life, but it's one of the most difficult parts of life that we're called upon to endure. Jesus witnessed that kind of pain in the, in the grieving of death, and he responded when he saw it with compassion and with comfort. You think of the incidences throughout the life and ministry of Jesus that we know from the Gospels. And in Luke chapter 7, we, we find him approaching this little village in the area of Galilee known as Nain. And there's a funeral procession coming out of the village. And a widow lady has one son, and he has died. There's no social security in Israel at this time. You know, uh, she, he, I'm sure, was her means of income, her, her protector, her, her source of livelihood. And so not only has she been bereaved of the loss of her child, her only child, but her future is up for grabs. And Jesus, seeing this procession, stops it and goes to the stretcher, places his hand on this boy, and raises him to life. Luke chapter 8, Jairus and his wife have lost a daughter, 12 years old. And Jesus comes to their house and calls her, little girl. She comes back to life. Can you imagine the joy of those parents that has replaced the grief that they've known? Jesus experienced that kind of grief personally. His friend, Lazarus, has died. Mary and Martha, his sisters, have sent word to Jesus. And Jesus delays going to see Lazarus, too. I'm sure they were hoping put their, his hands on him as he'd done for so many people and, and raise him back to good health. And instead, in his absence, Lazarus dies. We find the story in John chapter 11. You're familiar with it. And, and we come to to Jesus' part in that story where he, he stands outside the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. And it says that he wept. This was the morning. This is that kind of morning. The grief that Jesus experienced. 
And then he calls Lazarus forth, and, and life returns to him. Jesus wants to and will meet you, I believe, when there are times like this in your life and you experience the pain of death. But what Jesus is calling us to here is not a sorrow over that kind of death, but rather the sorrow over death that is caused by sin, our sin. We're not grieving somebody else's death. We're, we're mourning our own. It's a spiritual mourning. He uses that most intense word for mourning at the time of a person's death, but not for the death of another. It's our own because we are dead in transgression and sin, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is Jesus' invitation for us to experience his blessing, the good life, as Pastor Don introduced it to us last week. It comes as a result of, of the comfort that he gives when we mourn our sin. That which is responsible for our death. Because the wages, what we earn because of our sin, is death. Not just physical death, but a death that lasts for all of eternity in our separation from the holiness of God. Because God can't look at sin. God can't have anything to do with sin. And that is our condition. And it deserves our mourning. I'm indebted to Pastor Colin Smith for his work on this passage. Uh, as I read the stuff that he has written this week, I, I found it both clarifying and convicting. And so I want to take uh, from that, just want to acknowledge that source. Uh, if you have interest, his book is called Momentum. And uh, an interesting perspective and helpful perspective on these Beatitudes that we're studying. Colin describes this as spiritual mourning, and the way he defines it is this it's on the screen a heartfelt sorrow over particular sins, arising from humility and infused with hope, that leads you to forsake these sins at the cross. Well, that's a lot to unpack. So let's kind of look at these elements and walk our way through the definition as we find it lived out in our own experience, perhaps. I think by the design of God, the will of God for us to experience mourning. The, the first is simply this, that we mourn specifics, not generalities. This isn't, oh, dear God, I'm, I'm sorry for all my sin. <laughs> it's not that God doesn't know all of your sins, by the way. But I think we need to own our sin. We need to name them before him. Perhaps we, we've learned that pattern, and it is common. Dear God, forgive me for all my sins. We, we may have picked that up from Jesus' teaching in the pattern of what we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, it simply says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But both of those statements deserve a pause for expansion. As we began this year here at Moraine, we had some Friday nights that we devoted ourselves as a congregation to prayer, and, and Pastor Josh walked us through some different models of prayer, and I think the very first one that we did was, was the Lord's Prayer. And I appreciated that when we got to this thing, he said, okay, so, so here's a time for you to sit and to, to ask the Spirit of God to identify in you the things that you need to confess to God. That's the idea. We need to name and own our sin before God. There's nothing wrong with memorizing the Lord's Prayer as we have it here, or reciting that prayer. But we need to understand that it's not designed to be a mantra. It's designed to be a model for us of how it is that we're to pray. And we would do well to pause in confession at that time Forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins, and name them before God to fill in the blanks as they pertain to our God. We see this or hear this sometimes when kids apologize to one another, don't we? Or when we say, well, you know, say you're sorry to your brother or sister. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. So, boy. And, and, and what, what almost always you can expect this. The, the one to whom it is being addressed, go, for what? <laughs> Sometimes we adults are like that. You apologize to him. Well, I, I'm really sorry. For what? Because why? Because we've done it so many times. Right? And it's like, you don't need, you're, just, you're just gotten into this habit of asking forgiveness. Are you really serious? Do you really mean it? And so there's this owning of our sin. And we need to name it without, without excuse, without evasion. And then there's another element to this spiritual mourning. It's, it's this heartfelt sorrow. This is the difference between being sorry for what we have done and being sorry that we got caught. You know the difference? like, oh, man, got me. <laughs> you know? And we're not really sorry we did it. We're just sorry we weren't good enough to get away with it. And how often do we do that with God? Oh, he got me again. I need to go back and review some stuff about the sovereignty of God and his omnipresence and those kind of things that, that remind us that we will never, ever, ever get away with anything before God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. In other words, it's not enough just to be sorry. There needs to be this repentance, this turning our back on, this changing our mind about, this changing our direction. And that's what somebody, when they question your sincerity, is really asking, what are you going to do about it? Or do you just kind of wait until things have settled down and then do it again? It's 
the difference between admitting and repenting. I think we find a good illustration of this in the life of King Saul, 1 Kings chapter, chapter 15. God, through the prophet Samuel, has sent Saul to punish, really to annihilate the Amalekites because of their long, long history of sin. And God says, okay, the time's up, time's up. And he sent the army of Israel to go and wipe them out, leave nothing alive. And King Saul comes back, and he has not obeyed. Samuel goes out to meet him. And King King Saul says, I've obeyed the Lord's command. And, And Samuel goes, you did not. What is that that I hear? The bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle. Oh, well, some of the men, they wanted to offer sacrifices to God. You know the story. If don't look it up in 1 Kings chapter 15. But, but we learn from that passage that, that partial obedience is disobedience. And that God would rather have our obeying him than sacrificing him to to going through the motions of worship. When our heart is not there, when we've not done what he says. Finally, after he's lied and shifted blame and made excuses and denied the disobedience, when Samuel presses him, finally says, okay, 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 I've sinned. But would you go with me and and make this sacrifice before the elders? (laughs) Does that strike you as ironic? uh, Saul is far more concerned about his reputation than he is about repenting of his sin. Far more concerned about what the people think about him than what God thinks about him. King Saul never really changed his direction in his life. Near the end of his life, we read that there was a lot of regret. Ultimately, however, his arrogance and his independence of God resulted in his death in battle. So how do you know if your sin, your mourning is heartfelt sorrow, godly sorrow, if if you've engaged in what we call here spiritual mourning? How do you know if you've moved from simply regret to repentance. Well, I think it begins by sitting with your sorrow. The Bible rule refers to that as lament. It's not about wallowing in self-pity. It's not about self-condemnation. But it is about examining carefully our experience. I think we need to assess the damage that has been done. And it, it shows up in several different areas. First of all, there's the damage to yourself. How has your sin diminished your good life that God has intended for you? Has it dulled your appetite for the things of God? Has it dampened your worship of a holy 
God. Has it destroyed or at least diminished your testimony and the impact of your fruitfulness for God? Has it damaged your relationship with other people? And we do need to examine the cost, not just to ourselves, but to those that are around us. How has our sin impacted the lives of other people? Because nobody's sin is without impact on the life of another. It is like dropping a stone in a lake, and there's this ripple effect that goes. There's no way that Adam and Eve could have imagined the ripple effect. It wasn't a ripple effect. It was a tidal wave. No, it wasn't even a tidal wave. It was a worldwide flood of impact of what their choice, their disobedience to the command of God would result in. And then there's Abraham and Sarah who are going to help out God and fulfill his promise, and Ishmael is born. And there's a tsunami of effect that has perpetuated down through history to this very day in the Israeli-Arab conflict. And it can get traced all the way back to Ishmael's birth. There's a ripple effect. And you say, well, my sins have never had that kind of impact. Well, maybe not. But the sad tragedy is we do not know the impact of our sin often. Your sin can make you hard to get along with. Your sin can make you tough to love. Your sin can make you unavailable to be used by God because you are a dirty vessel, unfit to be an instrument in the hand of a holy God. Think about that. And then most significantly, your sin cost Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. But he died for sins individually, not generally. He died for your sins, every single solitary one of them. As we mourn our sin, particularly when we struggle with, and all of us do, we have what we used to call besetting sins because Beset by sin was the word in the King James Version, you know. So we had these besetting sins, these things that continually trip us up and that we do over and over and over again. And finally, we conclude that God is tired of listening to my confession over this particular sin, right? You don't even have to nod. I know it's true of you. All of us have them. I think one of the things that can help us in that circumstance particularly, breaking the cycle of repetitive sin is visualizing Christ's death in front of the temptation to sin. Or as you sin, do you hear the hammer blow 
of the Roman soldier driving the stakes into Jesus' hands and feet because he is taking your place on the cross of Calvary. Makes me think of a large crucifix that hangs on the exterior wall of the Episcopal Church of the Ascension on LaSalle Boulevard in Chicago. It's right there. It's, you, you walk by on the sidewalk, you can reach out and touch it. It is so close. I walked by it hundreds of times when I was a student at Moody. And every time, I was impacted. Because underneath that crucifix, it quotes Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Is it nothing to you? And I would stand there sometimes and just watch. And the vast majority of people needn't even glance at the crucified image of Jesus. It was nothing to them. But we can live that way, can't we? Is it nothing to us who sin callously? and confess casually? If that is true of us, then we do not mourn. Nor will we be comforted. The next element in spiritual mourning is this. It rises from humility. Pastor Don addressed last week this issue of our being poor in spirit. Our mourning comes out of this being poor in spirit, our poor in spirit being understood to be, we we come to God absolutely empty-handed. We have nothing to present, nothing to make ourselves acceptable to Him, nothing to offer to Him, absolutely nothing. We We are poor in spirit. And out of that poverty, out of that poverty, we find ourselves hopeless, unable to do a thing about our condition. And that is what we mourn. One of the barriers, I think, to our mourning or having that kind of reaction to our sin is that we, we enjoy sin. We like it. Sometimes we love it. Satan understands that about us. Who would ever do something that they're tempted to do when they don't like it? You don't have to tempt me to eat certain things. I don't like them. But chocolate? Oh, that's a different problem. Why? Because I love chocolate. My mother raised me right. She said, any flavor, as long as it's chocolate.
You see, we wouldn't sin if we didn't like to sin, if we didn't experience some... The problem is when it's done, we find it is not nearly as satisfying, gratifying as the temptation presented itself to be. It's what Hebrews 11.25 calls the, the pleasure of sin. This is when we need to revisit what it is to be poor in spirit, the releasing with an open hand and heart the actions and affections before God, that we might receive from him all that he has to fill us instead. Think of the exchange. Think of the exchange. You're giving up what you love to receive what God who loves you has for you. When you've done that a few times, you begin to realize that what God has for you because he knows you, he made you, he knows you better than you know yourself, he will always give you that which is better than what you come up with on your own. And so, and so we struggle with this because we have short memories. And we find ourselves like the prodigal son who was craving the pods in the pig pen when there was an abundance waiting for him in his father's house. Can we in spiritual mourning then bow the knee before the father? Can we release what we love so that we might receive his love? That's what it is to mourn. That's what it is to be comforted. Let's review the working definition here for a moment just because it's so long and we tend to forget. A heartfelt sorrow over particular sins arising from humility and infused with hope that leads you to forsake these sins at the cross. Just a couple of more here. Another element that Colin Smith talks about is that spiritual mourning is infused with hope. It's easy in our introspection, I believe, to, to allow it to lead to self-condemnation. That was never God's intent for us, that we inflict on ourselves our own punishment, that somehow we punish ourselves, that we judge ourselves, that we act as a prosecutor and, a, and an executor in our own sinfulness. Why? Because Jesus died in our place so that we don't have to. We don't have to die physically. We don't have to die emotionally because Jesus has paid the price in full. But if we don't stay anchored to that hope that we have, the truth that, that of who he is and what he's done for us, then, then our failures and, and what we have done to ourselves and what it's cost others can be absolutely oppressive. I think this is how Judas's life ended. After his betrayal of the Lord Jesus, it didn't take very long for him to declare, I've, I've, I've betrayed an innocent man. Tremendous regret and remorse. The tragedy was that he did not repent. He did not return to Jesus. Instead, he took responsibility for his own sin and went out and hanged himself. He took his own life. Mourning our sin can lead to despair, but Jesus' cross actually should be for us a beacon of hope, not condemnation. 
Because, because it was there that Jesus declared, it is finished, to telestai, an accounting term that means paid in full. It's no longer about what your sin did to Jesus. It becomes what Jesus' death on the cross has done for you, for me, for the entire world. It sets us free from that which held us in bondage. So the Apostle Paul writes for us in, Re in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. You know these verses well. Therefore there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so spiritual mourning will result in deliverance, not despair. And then finally, and spiritual mourning is the forsaking of our sin. Living into the freedom that Christ provides, Paul reminds us, let it, uh, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Let me take you back to Lazarus' tomb. And, and Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Can, 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 you, can you anticipate that for just a minute? Everybody in the crowd's going, what's it going to look like? I don't know how he got out there because he was bound head to foot with these grave clothes, these, these wrappings, these, these cloths that were used to mummify a dead body. And he gets out and he's in the open now and Jesus says, Loose him and let him go. <laughs> That's you and me. When Jesus saves us, he says, look, get the grave clothes off of you. Be free. That's what he does for us. And that's where mourning can end up for us. Great joy, great celebration, and a lot of amazement, don't you think? It's a matter of our turning our back on sin and walking away and heading in the opposite direction. All of that is what is caught up in this word repent. It means to change our mind and to change our direction. And then... We will know what it is to be blessed, favored, fortunate, truly flourishing, because we will be comforted. The word is parakaleo. It's the same word that we find used in John chapter 14 of the ministry of the Lord Jesus when present with his disciples. This is how he conducted himself toward them. And in his absence now, we find the Spirit of God doing the very same things for us. And he enlivens us, and he encourages us, and he equips us, and he empowers us to live victoriously, to serve effectively, to be faithful. Here's the point of all of this. 
The good life is marked by good grief that is met with God's comfort. The good life. What we're going to study together, what we will experience by the grace of God together as we walk in community together, what God wants to bestow on us, what God wants to richly bless us with is marked by good grief. Knowing how to mourn, how to lament our very real condition of death. So that we might be comforted. What does that look like? Let me put some points to this point, some things to practice. First of all, very quickly, good grief, this mourning that is meaningful, embraces the promise or embraces the process that God uses in our life to accomplish the purpose. He's got us in a purpose. It's going to take time. We're reminded of that in Philippians chapter 6, verse 1, where we're, we're told that, that God, who has begun a good work in us, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He is at work in you and for you. Being confident of this, Paul writes, that you began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me just add a word. This is not going to be on the screen, and, and you don't even need to look it up. Just listen to these words from James chapter two verses, or chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Because when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect in and complete, needing nothing. That, my friend, is the good life. Where before God, understanding what he has given to us, we need nothing. We've got it all. And if you don't have it, it's because God knows you don't need it. Ain't that freeing? It takes the pressure off of having to produce something in our lives. And then God's comfort is encountered in a person. I've referenced John 14. This is verse 16. It says, and Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. That's in the King James Version. Because it uses that word comfort. The same word that can and has been translated in other translations as companion and counselor and comforter and advocate. It's what the word means. It's the person of the Holy Spirit of God that takes up residence in us. And he accomplishes all that Jesus was to his disciples. He is doing that for us in our very life to this very day all the time. Right? And through that, we begin to experience all that God has for us as a companion. He, he's the one who has said, come follow me. And the Spirit of God is with us always. He's the deposit in our lives, guaranteeing our relationship with God. And Jesus said to his disciples, 
You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And he teaches them, and, and, and everything that I have learned from my Father, Jesus says to them, I have made known to you. So he's their coach and their counselor, and, and he's the one that's helping them figure it out. He tells a parable. They get together. He explains it to them. And what does he say about the Spirit of God's ministry in our lives? That he'll make plain to us the things that we need to be reminded of that Jesus taught and things that Jesus didn't have time to teach because he's our teacher. And he's our comforter. Jesus said to his followers, don't let your hearts be troubled. How many times did he say to his followers, fear not? And he said to them, in this world you're going to have trouble. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Because I have overcome the world. And that is the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. When we find ourselves in mourning. The Holy Spirit does that for us. He enlivens us. He encourages us. He equips us. He empowers us. <laughs> the good life is not devoid of heartache and sorrow and misery sometimes. But it's met with the resource of the Almighty God through the power of the Spirit of God that will be better than whatever you are experiencing. The good life is marked by good grief that is then met by God's comfort. Learn to mourn so that you will be ex experience the comfort of God and experience his good life. One quick footnote. As God allows us to experience trouble and reasons for mourning, and he will, you will experience the blessed life. We're going to come to understand what that means, what that involves, and God wants it for you. But the re there's a reason beyond just your benefit that God wants it for you. He wants you to share it with others. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read these words. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God who is a merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us with all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. You hear that? So that we can comfort others. And when we are troubled or when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given to us. That's, that's a whole other series, a whole other sermon at least. But the point is this. God did not give you the blessed life to enhance your capacity as a consumer. No, no. He's given you the blessed life so that you can be a conduit of that blessed life to others. Let me pray for you. Father God, we come so grateful, so very grateful for your having called us into relationship with yourself. Father God, if there are those here this morning that don't yet know you as a personal Savior, they're walking through grief perhaps on their own. Might this be a day when they would come to trust you and all that you have done through the, for them through the death of Christ on Calvary to set them free from sin. 
And might we together learn to mourn that position, to lay it aside, to be stripped of the grave clothes, that we might be comforted in the fullness of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.